Three key questions. Session overview. Who am I? What am I searching for? Why am I here? Application. Exam. Discussion guide for mentor and participant. Learner objectives. At the end of this session, you should have explored biblical and theological answers to the questions of the human identity, purpose, and longing as they relate to spiritual formation foundations. Experienced and embraced light on your own personal search for meaning, identity, and purpose. Acted on insights regarding the ways that human purpose, identity, and meaning affect personal spiritual growth and to apply such insights to your own ministry. Introduction Rebecca Thompson looks at the North Platte River flowing 112 feet below in the rocky gorge beneath the Fremont Canyon Bridge near Casper, Wyoming. She gazes at the rocks and the water and begins to cry. She tells her friend, who is holding Rebecca's two-year-old daughter, she's been here before, 19 years before, when she was just 18. Rebecca sobs out the story. On that awful night, she and her 11-year-old sister, Amy, went to a convenience store in Casper to buy potato chips and Cokes. When they came out, someone had slashed a tire on their car with a knife. Rebecca went back into the store, phoned her mom, and told her that two nice men were going to help them get the tire fixed. But instead of helping, Jerry Lee Jenkins and Ronald Leroy Kennedy grabbed them and hauled them off in their car to the Fremont Canyon Bridge 40 miles away. When they found that lonely bridge on that dark night, the two men took turns beating and raping Rebecca. Her face was pulp. Somehow, Rebecca was able to beg them not to do the same to her horrified little sister. They didn't. They just threw her off the bridge. She hit a boulder at the river's edge, 112 feet below, and died instantly. Their lust sated. The rapist threw Rebecca off the bridge, too. She hit a ledge and then bounced into the water with her hip broken in five places. She dragged herself ashore hovered between two big rocks, and shivered through the long night. A man and his wife on a fishing trip found Rebecca about 10 a.m. the next day. The doctors at the Casper Hospital set her broken bones by surgery and pins and a body cast, but they could not heal her mind and spirit. They could not bring her little sister back. They could not stop the nightmares. Rebecca couldn't either. Police caught Kennedy and Jenkins. Rebecca testified against them, pointed them out in open court. She had to describe the details of that horrific attack. What shame. Everyone now knew of her violation, her humiliation. One of the killers taunted her right there in the courtroom by smirking and sliding his finger across his throat in a slashing motion. The jury sentenced Kennedy and Jenkins to death, but the U.S. Supreme Court overruled the death penalty with life in prison with the possibility of parole. The murdering rapist appealed for a new trial on the basis that their defense lawyer really didn't want to get them off. Would they get out and carry out the threat they made to Rebecca in court? Their appeal was rejected, but as soon as they were eligible, Jenkins and Kennedy began to apply for parole. Twice every year they applied. So every six months, Rebecca had to go back to court to relive that shameful experience. Year after year, she recited her shame. As time went by, she had not been assaulted just once, but repeatedly. Every time a nightmare woke her up, every time she thought of her dead sister, 
Every time she had to testify again at a parole hearing, the shame of it all came back. Every time she walked down the street, she lived it again as people on the street whispered. Rebecca could not find the light after that dark night. She lived in the shadows of her guilt for getting her little sister killed. Her anger, rage at the monsters who had killed her sister and mutilated her body and spirit. And anger at whatever God there might be who let such evil things happen. And the shame was the worst of all. The shame. The eternal shame. Every holiday was mutely celebrated in the shadow of that reality. Every morning, afternoon, and evening came and went under that cloud of shame. So why, after 19 years, did she want to come back here to the Fremont Canyon Bridge? Rebecca is weeping, out of control now. Her friend does not want the two-year-old to see her mom like this, so she turns to take the baby back to the car. That's when he heard the body hit the water 112 feet below in the bottom of the canyon. The Fremont Canyon Bridge claimed Rebecca Thompson one final time. The Rebecca Thompson story is based on eight newspaper articles that appeared in the Casper, Wyoming Star Tribune. A longer version of it is found in Reflecting God, pages 19 through 20. A shorter version may be found in Max Lucado's He Still Moves Stones, Dallas Word Publishing, 1993, pages 23 and 24. The story of Rebecca will help as you launch your exploration into the questions of human identity, purpose, meaning. We start with Rebecca, move to the Bible, then to the Christian faith, and finally into our own hearts and ministries. We will examine Genesis chapters 1 and 2, Hebrews chapter 2 verses 6 through 8, Deuteronomy chapter 28 verse 65, Isaiah chapter 26 verses 8 and 9, and 1 John chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 noting any statements, indications, or hints having to do with these questions. Who am I? Why am I here? What am I searching for? Three key questions. Who am I? Arthur Schopenhauer, German philosopher, was strolling down the street pondering the mystery of human destiny. Lost in thought, he awkwardly bumped into a man, nearly knocking him down. The angry pedestrian snarled at Schopenhauer. Who do you think you are? I wish I knew, Schopenhauer replied. From Sophocles' Oedipus Rex to Alex Haley's Roots, literature has recorded our search to solve the riddle of personal identity. From the wanderings of Odysseus to the birth mother search for the adoptee next door, we have sought to answer, who am I? Are you an animal? Some scholars say that you are a beast, perhaps the best of the beasts, but still a beast. Hamsters, horses, humans are all chained to the same drives and behavior patterns, or so say the sociobiologists. From Reflecting God, page 21. Wes Tracy heard Joe Bailey, a giant among Christian publishers and editors a generation ago, tell of an encounter at the doctor's office. Joe's faith survived the tragic loss of two sons. He was taking his dying boy for one more treatment. While in the waiting room, he met a mother whose son was also dying. Joe spoke words of comfort and inspiration about meeting her son in heaven. Unfortunately, this woman had bought the animal definition of human beings. She would have nothing to do with God or heavenly reunions. Listen, mister, she said. Sometime in the next month, my son will die. Then we will put his body in a box 
dig a hole in the ground and cover him up with dirt. That will be the end of that. Are you a cipher? A zero? Some declare all this searching for a deeper identity is beside the point. You are born to die, and your pathetic little life has no meaning. Hugh Hefner of Playboy fame states proudly life is an end in itself, and pleasure is preferable to pain, so grab all the pleasure you can get. Some have a different, though just as pessimistic, philosophy. An ancient king demanded his wisest man tell him the entire story of the human race. The scholar came back after months of study and said, The history of the human race is, They are born, they suffered, they died. Is suffering or pleasure all there is to your existence? Are you a human computer? Some thinkers claim that you are a complex and intelligent machine. Theologian Stanley J. Grintz points out that the Star Trek series moves a giant step beyond the wedding of brain and computer chip to the humanization of the computer itself. The 1999 film The Matrix goes even farther. Personified artificial intelligence, AI, enslaves the human race, drawing its existence from the very life of humans. So, does your upgraded computer look like a portrait of you? The real you? Are you an immortal soul? Careful, think before you answer. Part of you, but only part of you, may be described as an immortal soul. Those who use this phrase to define you also act as if the immaterial part of our being is all that counts. The body is just the prison house of the soul. From Grins, page 28. Shirley MacLaine, in one of her out-of-body experiences, said, I now understood how irrelevant my physical body was. One day your immortal soul will shed this body and fly free, and you can then become your true self. You hear this kind of talk at funerals a lot, but it is sub-Christian. From Reflecting God, page 21 and 22. This notion that death is a doorway to eternal bliss conjures scary implications. Is suicide the route to trouble-free happiness? This idea also is in harmony with the reincarnation doctrine that our true humanness resides in some mysterious spiritual element called the soul. This notion is at least as old as Plato and several ancient Eastern religions that have found their way into the bloodstream of our cultural mind. But the popularity of this presumption does not change the Bible teaching that you and I are embodied creatures, and we will be embodied beings throughout eternity, just as many believe Jesus will be. From Grintz, page 27. Another thing that is sub-Christian about defining yourself as an immortal soul is it reveals the idea that immortality is something that we have or are, something we possess. There is nothing within us that is intrinsically immortal. We simply don't have within ourselves the power to live forever. Eternal life, all life, is something we receive, not something we are. It is a gift of God. Are you a godling? Some gurus tell us that we are virtual gods. John Denver said in a radio interview, I'm making progress. I'm getting better and better. Someday, I'll be a god. Sadly, he became an air crash victim before he could claim godhood. Carol Rydell challenges us to transcend our status as primitive homo sapiens and join her in becoming homo divinus. A host of others, some within the Christian community itself, urge us to discover the God within. They echo the notions of the Aquarian gospel and its heresy, all things are God, all things are one. From Grintz, 
page 102. Such teachings sound so warm and cozy, it is hard to examine them critically. But many who do find them at odds with the Christian faith. From J. Richard Middleton and Brian J. Walsh's Truth is Stranger Than It Used to Be, 1995, page 123. In a hundred examples, the Bible shows that God is distinct from and above all created things and beings. In fact, while bearing the image of God, we are fundamentally one with all that is not God, whether trees, galaxies, animals, or the earth. Indeed, our solidarity with the non-human realm is indicated by our creation, along with other land animals on the sixth day, Genesis chapter 1, verses 24 through 30, and our sharing the same food with them. The Christian view. So if you were not an animal, a sophisticated computer, an immortal soul, or a godling, what do you say when the voice calls, produce your ID? From J. Kenneth Grider, A Wesleyan Holiness Theology. 1994, page 237. You are an embodied person created by God and in the very image of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. The Lord arranged it that when Adam and Eve had children, the image of God was passed on to all generations. Echoes of God's own image include our ability to love. Some theologians say that the main element of the divine image of God in mankind is our capacity to love especially love expressed in our maleness and femaleness. This includes marriage, but it is not confined to all things marital. Echoes of God's image are also seen to rise above self-centeredness, to reason, to make moral decisions. Even animals make decisions, you say. True, but they do not make moral decisions. Dying for the faith as a martyr is a human capacity that expresses dramatically the image of God in persons. This divine image within is often what those who teach us to look for God within ourselves are talking about. There is something godlike within the human heart, something positive, and something that can be counted on to work for good and wholeness, to transcend self, to love, to reason, to make moral choices. You are the object of God's love. Max Lucado put it this way, If God had a refrigerator, your picture would be on it. If he had a wallet, your photo would be in it. He sends you flowers every spring and a sunrise every morning. Whenever you want to talk, he'll listen. And the Christmas gift he sent you in Bethlehem? <laughs> Face it, friend, he's crazy about you. The Bible reveals the length to which God will go to express his love for you. The suffering of Christ is the supreme example. Perhaps a good Christian response to Descartes' dictum cogito ergo sum, I think therefore I am, is sum amatus ergo sum, I am loved, therefore I am. From A Gentle Thunder, 1995, page 122. From Middleton and Walsh, page 149. You are a unity of body, soul, spirit, mind, and heart. Some say we are body and spirit. Others say we are body, soul, and spirit. Nazarene theologian J. Kenneth Grider writes that both views are incomplete. Though spirit and soul can be distinguished according to Scripture, the person is a complex, unitary being made up of body, soul, spirit, heart, and mind. From Grider, page 241. You are a person who is free and responsible. Though marked by sin and a member of a fallen race, God has graciously given you the ability to choose God and good. We call this previent grace. 
you are not free to choose your parents, your birthday, or your mental capacity. But you are able, in spite of sin, to choose God and good. Even this ability is the gift of God. John Wesley wrote, He, God, made you free agents, having an inward power of self-determination, which is essential to your nature, and he deals with you as free agents from first to last. From works. Environment influences you, but because of previate grace, it does not have the last word. Some teach that whether you are a missionary or a murderer, you should not be praised or blamed because you are merely what society, the environment, made of you. But this is not the picture of humankind the Bible or experience reveals. You were given the capacity to choose, and you were held responsible for your choice. You cast the deciding vote in choosing good or evil. What am I searching for? The longing heart. After reading each of the following excerpts, tell yourself, what does this reveal about our search? Excerpt 1. Graduation, Stanford University. A student speaker addressed the celebrating crowd, describing his class as not having any idea how it relates to the past or the future, having little sense of the present, no life-sustaining beliefs, secular or religious, and consequently having no goal and no path. From Rollo May, The Cry for Myth, 1991, page 21. Point of the story, even the best educated among us longs for something. Could it be for God? Excerpt 2. Everywhere you see people lost, lonely, hungry, and searching for something. Confusing as this life is, they often do something as dumb as three car thieves in Locksburg, California, who tried to steal a pickup truck. The owner saw them and chased them yelling. He hailed a policeman, and he too gave chase. The thieves made a valiant effort to escape. They scrambled over a tall fence with barbed wire, ripping their pants and scratching the blood out of their shins. But it was worth it. The rotund truck owner and the middle-aged cop could never scale a fence like that. They didn't have to. The cop looked through the wires and said, Congratulations, men. You just broke into San Quentin. Homeoletics. November-December, 1995, page 63. Point of the story. The more we reach for what we think we want, the emptier we feel. Our attempts to save ourselves are usually about as smart as breaking into prison. Have you ever broken into a homemade jail? Excerpt 3. Douglas Coupland was onto something. This man, who coined the term Generation X, wrote in Life After God, 1994, page 359, My secret is that I need God, that I am sick and can no longer make it alone. I need God to help me give because I can no longer be giving, to help me be kind as I no longer seem capable of kindness, to help me love as I seem beyond being able to love. Point of the story? More than a longing, our hunger for God is a desperate need. Why am I here? When the new millennium arrived, People were still asking, why am I here? The film Dogma, a combination of sacrilege and comedy, ends with the main character asking God, why are we here? God, played by pop singer Alanis Morissette, just grins, tweaks the questioner's nose, and disappears. Is existence a joke? Is our purpose a mystery? Does God even know why we are here?
Joan Osborne's hit song pictures us as passengers on a bus headed nowhere. Then it poses the haunting idea that perhaps God is also on the bus as one of us helplessly hurtling onto oblivion. But in your heart of hearts, you know there is a purpose to life. We find that intuition confirmed in the Bible. The Bible says the Lord put us in authority over the earth. Then God said, let us make man in our image and let them rule over all the creatures. Genesis chapter 1 verse 26. We are part of creation and we are to be the caretakers of the earth. Christians sometimes develop an anti-nature bias that regards nature as something to be exploited and used up. We must realize that creation is more than our plaything. It is God's handiwork. Psalm 8 verse 6 says, You made him, humankind, ruler over the works of your hands. Another part of our purpose is to develop a godly community of faith. Maria Harris had a point when she wrote in Fashion Me a People, A solitary Christian is no Christian. We come to God together, or we do not come at all. The church, the family of faith, is to reflect the Trinity. The three-in-one God models the perfect community, and Christians on earth are to echo that ideal community. The genius of the early Wesleyan movement was the community achieved in face-to-face groups. They discovered for themselves the wisdom of the New Testament, which urges the bearing of one another's burdens, of comforting, correcting, encouraging, exhorting, comforting, and edifying one another, of provoking one another to love and good works, of confessing our faults to one another, of weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice, of sharing the same love and unity that Jesus shares with his Father. From the John Knox Press, 1989, page 55. We are here to reflect the image of God. Some kings in ancient times left images of themselves in the parts of their kingdom where they could not often be in person. Likewise, God placed you and me on earth to represent our King and Creator. We are to reflect the Lord's character in our world. That is why we must stand with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord as in a mirror. Thus, we will be transformed more and more into His image, as 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 teaches. You are God's poem. We are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. The basic Greek word translated workmanship is poema. Our word poem comes from that ancient term. Think about it. You are God's poem, His work of art, His masterpiece. God is writing a poem in and through your life. You are an embodied person created in the image of God. You are hungering for a vital, real, and intimate relationship with God. There is a God-shaped vacuum within that waits to be filled with the love and the fellowship of the Spirit. You are here on earth to reflect the image of God the way a work of art reflects the heart of its creator. Your destiny is not absorption into some impersonal nirvana, but full community with the God who invites us to the heaven he has prepared for those who wear the signet ring of faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. Now there is a calling for you loftier than the divine tweaking of the nose and dogma much more meaningful than the bleak Fremont Canyon Bridge that shut out the light for Rebecca Thompson. Ponder St. Paul's plea, 
I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. Closing thought. If Rebecca Thompson had only known that she was so much more than her shame. But she didn't know. There are Fremont Canyon bridges all over the landscape, and Rebecca's in every town. Everywhere there are women and men acquainted with humiliation, violation, shame. They think they know who they are. Each thinks his or her name is spelled worthless, stained, hopeless, humiliated, violated, or shamed. What is man that you are mindful of him? You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 6 through 8. Application. Number 1. Write a reflection paper on what was Rebecca Thompson's philosophy of life? That is, how did this tragic woman answer life's basic questions? Who am I? Why am I here? What am I searching for? Number 2. Read and reflect on Genesis 3 and Psalm 51. Be prepared to discuss your thoughts on the meaning of these Bible passages when you meet with your mentor. Number three, from a perusal of news media, reading, or personal experience and observation, collect at least six examples of how sin darkens lives today. Be prepared to share these with your mentor when you meet.